Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to the latest edition of the Football Writers Podcast, featuring me, Mike Calvin, Seb Stafford-Bloor from TIFO Football, and Adrian Clark, the tactical analyst. Football's back on the landscape of everyday life. We've crowned our champions and remain intrigued by the shifting fortunes of the relegation struggle. But this extended season still doesn't feel right without crowds and atmosphere. At least three weeks into Project Restart, we have a better idea of what the new normal looks like. Some things, like the five subs rule and the tactics break, seem here to stay. We'll have words about that later. But overall, Aid, how do you think things have gone? Pretty well, actually. I I do. I think that it's been well organised. We haven't had any major incidents in regards to, to players testing positive for COVID-19, which I think is is welcome. The attitude of the players has been good. It's not surprised me, but I do think that in general, obviously some games are better than others, but in general, the players are playing at a tempo, a ferocity that, that's relatively normal, considering that they're not being backed by fans. It, it, it doesn't feel like reserve football in the majority of games. So some differ, of course, but but yeah, no, it's, I think it's going well. I just hope that some aspects uh, are not taken on permanently. I think you've, you've hinted at, at those. But in terms of, of what we do moving forward, I think this has given us an idea, hasn't it, that maybe the football calendar could change in the future. We've we've been married, haven't we, to August to May. But it's amazing how quickly we've adapted to this situation and it proves that, that anything is possible. And also, unfortunately, even though clubs will, will be dead against it, we haven't seen a deluge of major injuries considering the the amount of, of matches played in such a short space of time. And that obviously will maybe alarm certain people in the game who, who may now fear that, that, that things will become congested fixture-wise. But but look, by and large, pretty pretty good, I'd, I'd suggest. But but I, I'm personally missing missing crowds big time. Yeah, I think that's that's probably the overriding lesson of it all, isn't it? That we do, you know, we've, we've talked about fans mattering, but they do, and we miss them badly. On that basis, where do you think we are going, Seb, in terms of allowing fans back in it's it's a very difficult balance to strike isn't it yeah i mean i've i've heard september muted as a as a possible date but that seems terribly early my understanding in the beginning was that that wouldn't be possible until there was a vaccine available for covid-19 i mean we've seen crowds there's crowds permitted for new zealand rugby the abbreviated version of the super rugby tournament is happening there but then the nature of the pandemic was very different in that country and the topography of the land is very different. So I don't know. I mean, also more worryingly, Mike, I'm not sure where the roadmap exists. What's the example to follow here? What are the procedures? It's concerning that the procedure for actually allowing people into stadiums at the moment, which is just players, coaching staff, support staff, medical staff, media, that's awfully complicated as it is. So when you start adding people in, adding general members of the public in, do we have the capacity and the um, logistical know-how to do that at the moment? I, I, I haven't, I heard, haven't heard a rational, sensible plan. Put it that way. So, I, without that, it's very hard to say. Because mm, it's, well, I suppose it's a double-edged sword. You know, football is to an extent existing in a bubble at the moment, but it can't exist in a bubble, can it? Because you know, we're we're looking at a huge pandemic, and it would be 
irresponsible and morally indefensible to come back too early. Yeah, it would. And look, until there's a change in the medical circumstances, it's it's difficult to know know how it's going to play out. I, th- I think Seb's Seb's absolutely right. No one has an idea at the moment on on how crowds may return. At the moment, anyone that's allowed into the ground has to have a test, and 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 that's. You know that's not possible for members of the public. Will it? Will it be these immunity passports? People that have had it allowed in. I mean, you could you could probably space fans out, have one row, you know, uh, empty rows in between fans, and obviously seats separating them to to maybe provide a, a quarter capacity, something like that. But but then you're requiring so many stewards, aren't you? And the process of getting in and out of your seat is. Is difficult. So yeah, look, I do feel, as far as the EFL are concerned, they need some kind of paying customers into the grounds to to be able to function for the twenty twenty one campaign. But but there is no plan in place. And look, we're in July. We're fast approaching mid July. These things don't happen overnight, do they? So so I, I would imagine that we're we're staring at behind closed doors football for. For a good while longer, certainly in the Premier League, but in the EFL, it's a case of can they actually put games on without paying customers? I don't think anyone's really confronted that question properly yet. Yeah, I think it's interesting that the the word from government circles is that they would probably try and use the women's game almost as a as an experimental area because obviously the crowds don't have the density you would get in the say the Premier League. If we accept, Seb, that behind closed doors football is a reality for months to come, probably until next year, what about the atmosphere? You know, on a personal basis, I gave the sort of false fan noise a chance, but ultimately I just completely turned off by it. Liverpool are looking at a a German artificial intelligence system of computerised crowd management. Is that the sort of thing, you know, is that the shape of things to come? I think it has to be because um, even I speak from personal experience, of course, but obviously it's quite important that I watch the football (laughs) given I'm a football (laughs) writer and I'm trying really, really hard to engage as normal, but I can't do it. It's almost, I mean, I've tried different things. So I've, I've, like you, Mike, I've given the crowd noise a chance. It's not really for me. I've tried watching just with the in-stadium noise. That's not really for me either. So what I've gone to at the moment is I just watch on mute whilst listening to something else. (laughs) <laughs> um, and so it's becoming not like I'm not, I'm not listening to Leonard Cohen or something. It's not some weird yeah. sort of you know, experiment in, in, in working. Well, habits. I want to know what you're listening to now. You no, no, no I've just got, um, I mean, oh, this is getting too personal, isn't it? So I've got a uh, rainforest <laughs> noises. Um, and just because I'm, I'm trying to work and I'm trying to not be distracted by the weirdness of the stadium. Now, if anyone tries that, it'll make sense to you. But I think you have to, because I, I find it boring. I find it a less immersive experience. And even when you're not in the stadium, that's not usually true. So I think you have to find a solution here because even if people like me who are being paid to watch the football aren't as embraced by by the experience as they usually are, then that's an issue and that's one that needs a solution. Yeah, well, football is like, it's theatre, isn't it? It's sporting theatre and, you know, it's it's like playing to an an empty room. You're the only person in the room, it's, it's not the same, is it? No, it's just not no. the same. I, I, I'm, I'm with, I'm with you guys. I, I gave the crowd noise a go, but, but I do feel, yeah, I'm, I, I can live with the, the natural noise now. And to be honest, the people inside the stadium, the staff, the subs, they're making enough noise when, when teams score a goal, aren't they? It's, it's, it's quite impressive the, the sounds that they're, they're generating inside the grounds. But yeah, we spoke about this when, when, when the pandemic was, was at its peak. The big fear was. Would football be less enjoyable with no fans? I think we all agreed it would be, yeah. and it and it is. But 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 we have to take it, and you just have to take yourself away from away from it, really. But guys, do you, do you not see sort of some of the the? Um, I mean, this reflects in the way the players play. They don't celebrate in the same way. They don't respond in the same way as they would do were there a crowd to be in the ground. The whole experience is very sterile. As a as a as a sporting contest, it lacks a certain energy. I mean, I don't know whether that's a kind of that's a prejudice that I'm enforcing on these games, but it certainly seems that way. I, I think the, I think the players are handling it very well, actually, and I think that they are getting their 
they, they, they appear more motivated than I maybe expected them to be without supporters. I, th- I think that they are coping. They're probably coping with it better than we are as, as viewers, so to speak, which, which is strange, really. Because, there's, there's certainly yeah. less theatricality, isn't there? And, and actually, it's quite interesting. Without, without crowd noise the simulation actually becomes more obvious. You know, there've been a couple of yellow cards um, <laughs> issued. So I suppose, you know, I think the, the, the overriding thing is that home advantage has been completely negated. And I think that's, that's become very, quite significant. Do you think refereeing has, has improved or not? No. Because, no I know, well, VAR, VAR, VAR decisions certainly caused a, a lot of debate. But in terms of referees being influenced by crowds, that, that's not happening. I just wonder whether you'd, You'd noticed any, what, any what change? What I've noticed is is the you know the good the really good referees like a Michael Oliver and someone like that. The interaction with the players is very good, and it, and there's an there's almost like an equality of of, of interaction. You know, they're, they're they're addressing one another as equals, which I found quite interesting. And maybe without a you know a crowd behind them and the emotional sort of riptide behind them. You can have a a more reasoned relationship between player and and referee. That there, there, I was I'm surprised pleasantly that the microphones haven't picked up yeah. the torrent of, <laughs> of of bad language, which oh, I thought it was. Gonna... It's a miracle. Yeah, <laughs> what's, yeah. what's happened? I mean, yeah, if you if you'd have uh, had this in the 80s or 90s, yeah, it might have been a different, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so let's look at things, you know, in reality. Seb, what initiatives do you think will stick? I think five substitutions is here to stay. I think that will be... Despite favouring the bigger clubs? Yeah, I I think so, because um, inarguably it does favour the bigger clubs, but you could very much say that given the problems with football's calendar and the congestion within it, you could definitely offer it up as a mitigating initiative against burnout, against the huge workloads of players, and you could could rationalise it as being in the interest of the game. If you said that... You know, you weren't going to force someone like, for instance, I don't know, uh, Son Hyung Min, you know, who travels back and forth continent to continent across different time zones many, many times a year. If you were saying that you could um, alleviate his physical burden a little bit, then you could make a case for it. I mean, I can't personally see past how it favours the big teams because what's going to happen is if this does become a, pers- a, a, a permanent change, over time, sporting directors at affluent clubs are going to start constructing squads which are capable of taking advantage of that. You're going to have players who, not quite in the ice hockey sense or in the sort of the American football on and off way, but you're going to have players with sort of micro purposes. So you're going to have players that can come on for 20 minutes and that's going to be their thing because five substitutions allows that to be a permanent position within a team. I mean, also, Mike, let's, let's not ignore it. Is that, is that a bit like sort of, I don't know, the designated hitter in baseball? I, I think so. Play? I mean, yeah. I, I, I think so, because if you if you said to someone, right, if you were a, right, let's say it's Manchester United, now you were coming up against a particularly stubborn, you know, deep-sitting defence, perhaps your new initiative in light of five substitutions is to carry a an obelisk-type centre-forward, someone that can actually just be a big physical pivot at the top of the formation, a kind of an emergency measure that, under normal conditions, you probably wouldn't use more than, you know, five times a season for a total of 100 minutes. With those extra substitutions and the capability potentially to undo tactical, not mistakes, but a, a bold tactical decisions, you could carry a different type of player. And, you know, obviously with the finance involved, that, that suits the agenda of the most powerful teams. And also that's why it will be permanent, because the biggest, most powerful teams yeah. will want it to be. Yeah, uh, obelisk centre forwards. They call them lumps in my, <laughs> my neck of the woods. Aid, um, let's go on to the other, I think, thing that which will you know which will actually evolve and probably become permanent and that's the whole idea of a drinks break which very very quickly became a tactical break is that the thin end of the wedge are we going to get timeouts next and is the sort of natural flow of the game in danger of being ruined yeah I, while i don't i i can find five subs palatable as long as they're only in three windows uh, yeah I, I wouldn't want them spread out so you can make one every few minutes that would that would just kill the momentum of the game I actually feel that having the option of five subs can change the flow of a match quite dramatically and 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 why is that a bad thing necessarily it can it can potentially make things quite exciting can't it it might impact by the way on on strikers and how many and the record books in terms of how many goals they score if they're 
they're coming if they're only playing 70 man, uh, 70 minutes instead of 90 half the time but i don't like tactics breaks i don't want the match to be divided into quarters football's had two halves of 45 minutes since you know for, for yeah. a long long time now and 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 that is that has changed before our eyes and and i don't think anyone's really enjoying it apart from the coaches who of course are, are using it wisely and what we're seeing is teams that have built up a good head of steam suddenly have to stop and then that tide that tide often often turns and and i think that that is actually quite detrimental sometimes to the entertainment factor because once coaches get into players then then often it, it's in a more defensive capacity it's like how do we stop this happening so so for me i would i would like to see those th- those go but but five subs is not not an issue could actually make it make things more interesting the one the one downside is is that the the big boys will stockpile even more players and I think most people agree that's that's not a good thing. I had um I had a half baked idea on this. I was doing a column about five substitutions a couple of weeks ago. I think it should be three substitutions, but the opportunity to buy an extra two, buy an in inverted commas, if you use a player of a certain profile. If you give <laughs> minutes to, for instance, an academy graduate or someone with less than ten appearances, because I think you you have to mitigate it somehow because it's going to whatever whatever the outcome it's going to be to the advantage of the bigger clubs but you could insert something there which you know does serve the the the, the sort of the long-term aims of the game as a whole in a way but doesn't a coach or a manager just want to win the game so yeah, you know, course, the, the bigger course. issues wouldn't wouldn't pass you know wouldn't pass his mind would it no i mean i completely agree oh just on the tactical breaks mike you're a baseball fan I'll give it about a year until we see whatever the British equivalent is of the Aflac duck walking across our screens. Um, I suppose it's the Vitality dog, isn't it? That's that's yeah, the that's yeah. that's the British equivalent. Oh, so the the ad people will love it, won't they? I mean, commercial opportunities will be made of these because no, we we don't want to see them oh, going and standing that. around having a drink, do we? I mean, I yeah. don't I don't want. Um, you know, I, I like American sport, and I mean no disrespect, of course, but I that's one of the things that I have to look beyond when I watch American sport is this sort of invasive nature of advertising, not around the game, but in the game. I hate it. I absolutely hate it. I'll tell, tell you what will be entertaining and, and, and sort of tie in with baseball is that you get managers who get ejected on a regular basis. They go out, they confront the umpire, and their eyeballs are about six feet out of their head. And it's all show. It's all WWF stuff, but it's just fantastic entertainment, and they get bunged into the stand with no extra punishment. So, you know, you can imagine sort of, I don't know, Sean Dyche menacing a referee in the centre circle. Fantastic. You need a more physical type of ref, though, don't you, Mike? You come in like, if Sean Dyche is menacing anybody, I mean, what, is Michael Oliver going to wrestle him off the pitch? Don't think so. Yeah, the average weight of a baseball umpire is about 22 stones. Yeah. So, uh... <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I have no idea what you're talking about. But yeah, I've never watched, never watched a game of baseball in my life. Okay. Well, while we're talking about officialdom, VAR. Now, FIFA, I read this morning, have taken control of it from IFAB, which suggests that, you know, it'll be under Kalina and there will be no flexibility. And basically, it will be do as we say, boys. Good or bad thing, Aid? Probably good. I'm not not a fan of different countries, different nationalities, yeah, different leagues interpreting things the same way they could take they could also take control of the handball rule yeah yeah exactly i don't know it depends what they do with it doesn't it before i can really say whether it's it's good or bad it needs a review that is for sure i think some of the rules of the game need reviews the the offside is a a clear one that that probably needs a, a a discussion and a change and, and the handball one as well handball is, is ridiculous at the moment we saw that we saw that with the the incident at, at Bramwell Lane and also it's the it's the use of the monitors isn't it we saw at Arsenal in my opinion Eddie Nketiah's red card was just about a red card I think it was mildly subjective and I was pleased to see the referee go go to the monitor to see it for himself and make the call fine but but then you know a day later, two days later, you've got the Tarkovsky incident at West Ham last night, where for me it's almost an identical oh, challenge. Worse, worse Probably, yeah, I would I would say worse. I would say worse. I'm being kind when I'm saying yeah. it's identical. It's worse, and 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 VAR decides not to intervene. I think 
something has to change here. But personally, I feel that the people at Stockley Park, the system at Stockley Park is a little bit broken. And I think that, that they need to be held to account a little bit more because there are incredible inconsistencies. You, you, know, you, you know what's really troubling about those two instances you bring up there is that, okay, the first one, I, I think they're both red cards. I think Nketiah is a red card every day of the week. It's like you put a player in danger, you could have ruined his career with that tackle, whether he meant it or not. But we saw, I mean, before the referee went to the monitor, how many, how many, how many replays of that do we see? 12, 13? And by contrast, the Tarkovsky incident, it, it didn't seem to get a, a second look. Now, I know that VAR look at everything, but that is not the same thing as saying we look at everything in the same detail. And so when you, when you see the disparity, by allowing that to exist, you're playing into the hands of the type of supporter who believes in conspiracy and bias and all, all the nonsense, basically. But you're also eroding at the, at the at trust. Because it's not enough to say, yeah, we look at everything. Because quite clearly, you're not looking at everything in the same level of detail. Because you're not pausing the game for the same length of time. And it's a kind of it's a fundamental problem with the system. There's no defense for that. Because Tarkovsky, that's a red card. Every day of the week. Come on, it's a red card. It's thigh high, studs, it's late. Nowhere near the ball, it's a red card. And yet, we didn't even dwell on it. I just, I, I, I haven't... I haven't heard an explanation for that, which satisfies me. Yeah, if it, basically what I would want above all else is for FIFA to put those decisions back in the hands of the on-pitch referee. Yeah. That, 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 I think, is the most important change that, that needs to be made. Where you can use technology in terms of a line, a goal line, an offside line, use it, make the call. That's, that, that's, that's what it's there for. It, when it comes to tackles and red card incidents, I think you have to say, ref, ref this, this one... You might want to have another look at it. Go and have a look. I think that VAR playing God is something that, that, that fans in this country don't like. Mm. Let's look at wider issues, if we could. Research from the European Clubs Association. Clubs in Europe face a loss of about €4 billion Euros due to the pandemic. Now, what are the implications of that? Do you think salary caps are inevitable? I think they probably are in the EFL. Would they work, Seb, in the Premier League? Oh, I mean, the horse has bolted, Mike. Because the mm. problem is, is, is not the introduction of the salary cap, it's the level at which you introduce it. Because what's fair? Do you pitch it up to the point where it restrains a club like Tottenham or a club like Manchester City? Or do you, do you, do you make it far more egalitarian and, and kind of pitch it down towards a, a sort of um, <clears throat> a Bournemouth level? I have no idea. I mean, I, I like it in principle, but I think this is has this this had to be something for me anyway that it was embedded in the culture from the outset. You cannot put the toothpaste back in the tube because <laughs> the game has the game has adapted itself to capitalism. And so, how would you reconcile what football is today with what it needs to be in order to mitigate the the, the circumstances and the the cost of the pandemic. I, I don't I don't know how you bridge those two gaps. And I know it's a little bit theoretical, but then that's entirely the problem. There's no, is there an, an example of a an entity like football or in any industry where you've had a, a restriction of trade placed into it because that's really what it is a restriction of trade, and then the industry has had to adapt under that cap. I don't even know how that would work. Mm, well, I know we're well, using baseball as an example a lot today, but they have a sort of a, a, a luxury tax in operation. I suppose on the wider issue, I think probably you would accept aid, wouldn't you? That salary caps are probably inevitable in the in the EFL. Are there are there too few signs around of football's willingness to help itself? And I'm thinking in terms of Steve Bruce's idea of each Premier League club giving two million pounds to counterparts in the EFL. I suppose it's too easy to forget, isn't it, that the grounding that many top players get in the lower leagues, do you think that maybe football should look after itself well, or look after its own? You know, Absolutely, I do. I think ever since we started doing these podcasts, what was it, back in March, the we've been saying the same thing, that those Premier League clubs, the wealthy, need to help protect English football's pyramid. And, and let's be honest, that's not really happened so far you know hooray for Steve Bruce he's he's put his head above the parapet he dared to say it and he, he's right because so many managers have had their grounders there so many players it's something to be incredibly proud of in this country having the having the 92 and not just the 20 in the in the Premier League look two million pounds if you split it evenly across 
across 72 clubs would, would be £550,000 each. You know, it, it would help. It would help, you know, a little bit. If you were to increase it to, you know, three and a half million pounds each club donating, you're getting towards a million mark for each club in the pyramid. And that would make an, a significant difference and basically allow the EFL to continue for the 2021 season. And three and a half million is, is a drop in the ocean compared to what these clubs are bringing in, in terms of, of revenue, especially from, from the TV. So, so, yes, I would absolutely hope that this that this happens on the, on the subject of the the salary cap by the way the the luxury tax i quite like it because if you do set that bar at, at a medium level let's say i don't know <laughs> medium level being okay uh average salary being this I, is I, the I, problem, don't, I don't know yeah this 50 let's say 75 grand a week still high okay 75 grand a week but anything you sp- you spend over that you have to pay a, a, a tax on it's going to, in general, bring salaries down a little bit, which I think has to be has to be a sensible thing. And if and if clubs want to speculate and pay someone three hundred thousand pounds a week and pay the extra twenty percent luxury tax on top, good luck to them in a way. If if that if they feel they can they can afford that, but it might just it might just rein everybody in. So so maybe that's one way of making it work. Because isn't it, you know, it, you know, that points up the difficulty that it's very difficult to realistically legislate ambition. Now, if you look at what's going on in the championship, you know, Rick Parry has been saying that the championship is, and I'll quote, a financial nonsense. You know, you've got all sorts of issues, you know, coming out of, of Wigan, which obviously is a story for another day. But as a general rule of thumb, Almost getting into the Premier League now has become obscenely expensive. Yeah, well, I I would use a different word. I'd say it's become far too enticing because the evils evils might be the wrong word, but the, the habits that it encourages encourages and clubs who are trying to chase that dream are hugely damaging to to long term futures. And the champ, there is no better example of that than in the Championship. And the kind of the risks that owners are willing to take in pursuit of that dream and pursuit of ultimately, I'm afraid, what has become a payday. Because it's not really about a sporting dream, is it? It's not a, you know, we want to see a sold out stadium when Liverpool come to town or Manchester United turn up. It's it's not that. It's a it's a it's a lottery ticket. If you get to the Premier League, you can collect your massive broadcasting payment, you can cheerfully go down if you want to, and you've still done good business. And the things that that encourages in owners, the way that certain de- that, that enables certain decisions to rationalise, is actually very frightening. That's the right word to use for it because you see, you see how precarious the future is. If you it, just a cursory look at some of the financial, the top level financial statistics of those clubs is absolutely terrifying. And I say that as someone that has no clue financially. I'm not. I you know I have no. You know, uh, I, I, have a, I have a GCSE in maths and that's it. And if, <laughs> if, 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 I, if, I, and if I can see that, that's really worrying. Do you, th- do you think, Aid, that there will be a prioritisation of academy development in, you know, in what's going to be a new financial era? So in other words, homegrown players, that's really important. I don't know, actually. I'm not, I'm not, quite, I'm not entirely sold on that because academies cost a lot of money, don't they? And... And I, I just wonder whether some clubs might might actually try and follow the the Brentford lead and 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 withdraw that cost and look to pick up waifs and waifs and strays along the way. I, I don't know. I don't know is the honest answer. I think in the EFL, the priority is to get is to get clubs being run properly by the right people. That has to be that has to be issue number one. I think it can be solved in a number of ways. I think the parachute money should be spread spread more more evenly to stop that big that big gamble and the disparity in the championship he wants to get wages down i mean clubs are spending over 100% of their income on on wages which is bonkers he's talking about bringing it down to 50% to get to that level you'll have to shed a lot of a lot of jobs unfortunately i think that the footballers won't suddenly be expected to earn 500 pounds a week but what you'll have is less footballers earning similar money so so i think a lot of people will will lose their careers but but it will be for the greater good in a way because once we get to that more sustainable level where 50 percent of income is is spent on on salaries that, that then maybe we will get the right kind of owners that can come in 
because they're not expected to speculate 20 million here, 30 million there. Everything's done under a more even umbrella. And that's when you might be able to get fan ownerships and, and, and people, local people on board in terms of owning clubs across across the EFL. But but a lot of work has to be done, doesn't it? But to, to get to that stage, unfortunately. But but yeah, I, I don't know about academies. I, I can see a day where, where, you know, Premier League clubs have the academies and then they loan. They basically, you know, these these players are then loaned to all the clubs in the EFL and, and, and you will have, I don't know, in an 11, you know, 11 a side match in the, in the championship, nine or 10 of them might be Premier League yeah. players. And online. it's just a farm system by then, isn't yeah. it, really? Because yeah, those championship yeah, clubs are, yeah, those championship clubs are not having to, to pay the wages of those players. That That's how I see the future, unfortunately. It's, it's not what we want, but it needs must, I guess. What about transfers, Seb? Do you think it will be business as usual at a certain level? So there'll always be, you know, it's interesting to see Michael Zork, the sporting director at uh, Borussia Dortmund, talking you know, quite openly about planning for life after uh, Jaden Sancho. Now, you know, there will be some negotiation, but Sancho will go for north, somewhere north of 80, 90 million, one would imagine. We're going to get recurring stories. You know, I noticed yet again that Messi was linked to Manchester City this week. <laughs> you know, that's the definition of fantasy football, isn't it? But in general terms, what about business as usual in transfers? I think the transfer market will reward creativity this time around, Mike. I think we're going to see a lot more payment in kind type deals where clubs try, instead of trying just to purchase off the rack, they try and find a partner within the European game with which they can align an interest. So, you know, my weakness in one position is your strength in another. Let's see what we can do to kind of come out with a mutually beneficial solution. Yeah, you've mentioned that the, the top level of the of the market, I think that will stay the same because I just think the sort of the imperatives at that level are different to, to what they are at the rest of the game. Those are not footballing needs necessarily. It's a, it's a game of wanting. It's um, a, a frivolous part of the market. Lower down, I kind of, I say like the middle and lower class of the system. Interestingly, I think it's going to shine a light on which clubs work well. Like in terms of like the, the clubs that are built to to avoid inefficiency. So the ones where you've got a sporting director, a technical department and a coaching team, when they're all aligned, when they are certain on what a team needs, what works within their system and what they can what they can do with a player and asset, I think that's the kind of club that's going to thrive. It's all relative because it will depend on what, what, what level of the game that is. But I think the um, those are the ones that will profit in this situation because it's not a... You cannot, as previously, did it really matter for a Premier League club overspent by £5 million for a player? Probably not. So the premium is on getting things right. And getting things right demands internal structures to be working properly. And I think that's the currency now. Mm. What about the general models? You've got the global model that Manchester City use. You know, I know that there was a deal between the Red Bull clubs this week. The South Korean forward, Hang Hee Chan, uh, went from Salzburg for nine million, which is, you know, that's that's pretty, uh, you know, obscure anyway, isn't it? What happens between two clubs with, under the same brand? But as a whole, do you think that, you know, this whole financial crisis will make it much more elitist. The game will become much more elitist. Yeah, I do feel that more clubs maybe maybe will have investments or relationships with other clubs around Europe, around the world, even in providing it's within the within the rules. Maybe even in this country, Premier League clubs aligning with others down the pyramid. You know, if we just spoken about it, how we feel that, that clubs will, clubs in leagues one and two and the championship will own less players and they'll they'll top up their their teams with with players that belong to other clubs. And I, I do feel there'll be relationships built. It just depends whether whether we're willing to accept that in this country um, as, a, as a change. Watford have sort of been doing that down the years, haven't they? The, the ownership there have have got interest in different clubs and we've seen a lot of trade deals between them. Not that many of them have come off, so you could argue it hasn't always been to help each club. But but yeah, no, I, I can see that that being an inevitable change. And it's not really what we want, but but nothing is perfect at the moment, is it? And and we just have to find a, a way for, for football to, to bounce back from, from this crisis. And, and if that means the richest have more stakes 
in other clubs and teams around the world and in this country, maybe that's the price we have to pay. Yeah, it does seem strange, doesn't it? That, that, you know, we're talking in these terms, yet, you know, on the other hand, we're talking about Chelsea potentially spending around £200 million on Havertz and Chilwell and, and Rice. I suppose, you know, to your point about being creative and unlocking blocked talent, if you like, will there be some reclamation projects on the market this, this summer? And I'm thinking in terms of people like John Stones and Dombele, maybe even Naby Keita from Liverpool, Alex Lacazette perhaps from Arsenal. Again, are there players out there who are underperforming yet they have longer-term potential? It depends on the player, but I think your general point is absolutely right, Mike. I think I think a, if, you, if I was a sporting director at the moment, I'd look at the market and I think if I, if I have to spend the same amount of money on a, a developing player, 21, 22, and I'm paying for his potential versus I'm playing, paying for the performance of a, for instance, Lacazette, I think I'd go with Lacazette just because he's more of a guarantee. It's less of a risk. And there's a greater basis on which I can form that judgment. As a you know, he's a, he's had a longer career, scored more goals. Alternately, though, I think if you're if you're if you're if you're grouping an Undembele into that, then I I'm almost inclined to think that probably you move away from that kind of player because you're going to be this is going to be a risk averse market. This is not a place. This is not a, a market with a lot of money to burn and where people can you know survive making a for instance a forty million pound mistake. And with someone like Undembele. Do I trust him to invest? Do I do I want to invest in a, in a player that has had that many issues? I'm not sort of passing judgment on what those issues are. I think it's a mix of a, a few different things. At the same time, has he performed? No, he's been absolutely laughable since he since he joined Tottenham, and that's the kind of player that I think will suffer. A Lacazette who kind of oscillates between a six and an eight out of ten. Okay, an Undembele who is either a nine or a three. Not so much. Because it's it's just um, it doesn't suit where the game is in this at this period of time. Yeah, look, I just think on on Lacazette, he I like Lacazette. I personally would like like him to stay yeah, at Arsenal. Too. But if if Arsenal are going to have to make some tough decisions, and they will probably have to sell or swap trade good players in order to bring in players that they would deem more valuable in the in the long term. And, and Lacazette, I think is. Uh, Atletico Madrid have been long-term long-term admirers of him, Simeone in particular, and and we all know that Arsenal want Thomas Partey. You do wonder whether there'll be some kind of trade-off trade-off there on on reclamation players. Yeah, of course you you can't write you can't write individuals off because sometimes they are just a bad fit, style-wise, coach-wise. I'll give you two names that that that, that if we'd have had this show years ago, we'd have been saying, would you take them, would you take them? Kevin De Bruyne and, and Mo Salah. I mean, De Bruyne wasn't wanted and went to Wolfsburg to resurrect his, his career. Mo Salah went to Serie A and, and look where they are They are but, now. So, hey, is, Aren't those two like, are there examples of one coach's really, really poor judgment? <laughs> I mean, it's, um, well, I won't mention him by name, but it's kind of like, uh, I don't know, like I, I, I feel like, Everybody in the world except one person knew that Kevin De Bruyne was going to be a star of the game. <laughs> yeah, look, I don't see Kater. I don't see Kater necessarily moving on. I think we're seeing flickers of light from him. John Stones needs a new manager, a new challenge, yeah. and and to step, take a step back. And Dombele doesn't it does has been rubbish, but he, he also needs to get away from from Jose Mourinho before his confidence just sinks, you know, even lower. So so yeah, certain players, but. And Dombele was really, he was an excellent prospect when Spurs signed him. So under in the right environment, whether he can come back, maybe. Mm, can I throw another name at you, Seb? Mm. Um, Phil Jones. Now, he's been mentioned as a possible move from Manchester United to West Ham, you know, because of the David Moyes link. When you, you, know, you think about it, Sir Alex Ferguson was, you know, comparing him to Duncan Edwards. And now... You know, probably through very little fault of his own, he's a bit of a figure of fun in, in, you know, certainly on social media. I think there is a head it and kick it defender there somewhere. He, he needs to leave, when he will leave Manchester United, one assumes. Yeah, I mean, I, I completely agree with you, Mike. I think that the worst thing that ever happened for his career was that Duncan Edwards comparison. And let's be fair, despite everything he achieved, Alex Ferguson was not always the best judge of young players, from outside of his own academy at least. 
there are some skeletons in that closet. David Bellion shaped skeletons. Um, <laughs> Eric Chamber Jamba, you know, there's, yeah, a, there's a few yeah, of them. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I, I, I think Phil Drain's kind of a sign of the time, isn't he? He's a, the, the silliness around him and the things that you referenced, the, the mockery, nah, it's a sign of the times. It's, it's a way that certain people interact with the game. You know, it's very superficial. You know, it's, it's, you know, it's emoji fodder, isn't it? But yeah, Phil Jones is a perfectly good defender. He's an example of someone whose his career, his career has been obliterated by a lack of confidence. Mm. One of the things that sort of, um, one of the, the sadder things that I've heard in recent times actually was he was, he's actually due a, a testimonial at Man United. And he's not going to have it because I mean, he said, quote, no one would turn up apart from my mum and dad. <laughs> and okay, so sort of, you know, online world giggles and lols and whatever else. But actually, if you think about it, 10 years of service to a football club and that's how you feel, that's really sad. That's awful. He needs uh, a cuddle. He needs a cuddle, doesn't he, Phil Jones? He just he needs, needs a manager who, who yeah. he just needs to go somewhere where people appreciate him being at the club. That he's not, he's not a kind of, he's not used as a device with which to implore a chairman to spend more money in his position. It's a kind of, yeah, we've got Phil Jones back. Brilliant. You know, go, go, go to, go to the middle of the Premier League because there's enough clubs there with bad defenders where, you know, he would be an upgrade. And just be someone that, that, that the fans want to see in their shirt. I think that would make yeah. a huge difference. Yeah, I could see him at, South, at Southampton. He would yeah, improve yeah, them yeah. Straight, straight away. I mean, if Sean Dyche, and I, 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 I chucked this out there the other day, and I've actually since heard a number of West Ham fans mention Sean Dyche as, as a possible replacement for Moyes because they're not, they're not happy with him. If Sean Dyche was to rock up at West Ham, who, what better manager to to take a Phil Jones under his wing and say, "Look, I'm gonna I'm gonna remind you of the art of defending, and this I'm gonna look after you. I'm gonna bring out all that potential that you had as a, as yeah, a young absolutely. player again." You can make I, an I argument for Phil Jones being at Arsenal. I mean, I, not as a starter, maybe, and I, it's a bit tenuous with Saliba arriving at the end of the season, but he's better than a lot of the defenders there at the moment. Mm. Um, you know, and certainly his skill set is broader and more useful. Mm, possibly, but I, th- I think Arsenal are looking towards something else. Yeah, mm-hmm. in terms of younger players. Yeah, I agree. I mm-hmm. agree. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You you mentioned Sean Dyche there mm-hmm. and Aid. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when we look at it, only Liverpool and funny enough, Arsenal are, are, are the, have earned more Premier League points this calendar year than Burnley. You know, one defeat in twelve. You know, he's already looking forward to next season. He won't risk me or Cork just for a couple of games now. You know they they they're on that sort of precipice of, of a potential Europa League place. Is there a snobby snobbishness about English football that prevents a fantastic coach and a very strategic thinker like Sean Dyche turning up at, with all due respect to Burnley, a much bigger club? Yeah, I think there is an element of, of snobbishness. I do, but but I also feel that that certain managers suit certain environments as well. I think if you're managing a a global giant or a huge club in comparison to Burnley, there are other other factors to consider and you're dealing with different different types of players and and no matter how brilliant you've been with that with that smaller club because of the brand of football you've had to implement there, it's it, it the, the, these potential employee employers have to take a leap of faith. Can, can can that guy transfer those skills to our team with our players who are supposedly more talented? So so now I, I I just feel that yeah we we he, maybe Sean Dyche's place is is in the not quite elite tier of clubs in the Premier League. But 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 look, I, I would be delighted to be proven wrong. I, I just don't. Just don't see one of the so-called giants employing him. I just, I just don't see it, and and that is incredibly harsh. But but then there are there are lots of good players out there that that never get the chance to to play for those clubs as well for one reason or another. It doesn't mean that that you know that you haven't fulfilled your potential. Yeah, I, I think he's intelligent enough and knowledgeable enough to to actually adapt. To, yeah. to wherever he turns up. But, but and, it is a know. leap of faith, though, isn't it? Do you know what I mean? Because we haven't seen Burnley play the type of football, for example, that, I don't know, that that, uh, that an Arsenal would aspire to play. But, uh, you know, his point will be, and, and has, you know, when I've talked to him about it, it's, well, look, you know, I, I, you know, I, I don't have my 
style is not set in stone. It, it is shaped by the the players that I have available to me. Yeah. And if you have yeah. a different type of player, yeah, and he's you know, yeah. you know and yeah, he's, but he, can, he hasn't bought players, has he? He hasn't he hasn't bought players because they haven't got any money. Well, yeah, but he he could have he could have delved into the market to 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 create to buy more creative players to buy players that play a different brand of football. He could have, but he recognizes that that with what he's got to work with and where Burnley are financially, their best bet is to play that brand, that brand of football. I just, yeah, I, I, I certainly see it from both sides, but, but if I was a, a you know, an owner of a, of a giant club, I, I wouldn't be looking at him for that this reason. Be- this is becoming a little bit like my parents' divorce. This, this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I will say like, could you, I, I think one of the problems, I, I, I'm going to start with Mike. Um, because I, I think um, I've always found him a very erudite person, Sean Dyche. And I, I, I love listening to him. I, I think he's, he's a very interesting man. And I'd love to see him given the opportunity to kind of adapt his coaching strategy around, you know, a new set of resources. I think one of the big problems is fans. Like, can you imagine the reaction if a, if a club of like an Arsenal size or whatever... It, it, people don't look at these things, do they? They don't think, oh, you know, well, yes, this this guy is is out of chance. It's all about the it's all about the the image of it. It's a very difficult well, obstacle to well, get well, look at the bling of it. Moyes at, Man- Moyes at Manchester United. It's it's it's, a, it's a, an example, isn't it? I mean, I would I would I would question whether in that instance, I I think it was a bad decision. That I mean, I I agree with you completely that Moyes wasn't given the right opportunity and that there was a certain negativity. In reality, I think that there are a lot of things overlooked about his Hodgson time at Everton. At Liverpool. Hodgson yeah, at Liverpool. that's that's fair. Although Hodgson, I, I think Roy Hodgson was a little bit naive. He made the, some of the same mistakes that Graham Souness made twenty years before, where you go into a club like that and you try and force your will on on a, an organisation of that size, not going to end well. So it's 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 interesting. Hmm. Well, if if Burnley are assumed by too many people to be a below stairs club, you know, you would think, well, they would feature in the relegation struggle. Now they're miles out of that. But how is it all shaping up? You think at the bottom of the Premier League, who are our favourites to go down? <laughs> uh, well, yeah, yeah, Bournemouth and Norwich. I think, I think still, well, Norwich for sure, but Bournemouth highly likely. Villa are looking the most vulnerable because they're not they're not scoring enough goals, are they? Aston Villa at the moment at the top end of the pitch, you do wonder if if Grealish isn't isn't going to be the talisman who who will step up and and at the back they're not exactly watertight. Although I have seen signs of improvement on that score, and 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 actually the the win for Watford against Norwich, although you know it's not the result of the century, it wasn't a stellar performance. The the use of Danny Welbeck, I've just written a piece on this, the use of Danny Welbeck on the left has been long overdue. And and I think that that might just tip the balance in their favour. Believe it or not, Danny Welbeck, who for me, is a left-sided forward. I don't see him as a centre-forward anymore. I think his best performances for United and for Arsenal were were from, from wide areas where he could offer that defensive work rate and, 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 and uh, travelling with the ball from deep and joining in as a second centre forward inside the box. I think that's his game. He, he, that, that was his first start for Watford this season on the left. And I think they've missed a trick. It's been a bit imbalanced since De La Feo was, was injured. They've used Pereira there. They've used Cleverly. Not the same type of players. And uh, and balance is so, so important in football, in football teams. And with Saar on one side and Welbeck on the other, I think they've got two, two powerful players either side of Deeney, who of course isn't quick and, and and likes to drop into pockets to hold the ball. I just think the dynamic of the team can change if Welbeck stays fit and on the left with Saar on the right. And of course, you've got Dekure as well as the chief attacking midfielder there. It's a very powerful attacking midfield unit. And I just think that that, hit, that might just be the moment that clicks Watford into, into the kind of gear they need to survive. So so on the basis of all that I'm saying Villa, I guess. Yeah, certainly, <laughs> you know, if if Newcastle turn up at Vicarage Road on Saturday in their flip-flops as they did against Manchester City last night, yeah, Watford will definitely win that one. What about West Ham, Seb? They'll only have themselves to blame if they slip up at Carrow Road, won't they? They will do. I thought they were very very poor against Burnley on Wednesday night. I've got a little bit of I mean I I've got a concern about their craft. 
I think what worked for them against Chelsea a week ago was their ability to counter-attack, the work of Mikel Antonio at the top of their formation. Do the creative parts of this team work well enough? And that's what they'll need to break Norwich down at, at Carrow Road. So this was a step back. I, I do think they're going to be fine, Mike, because I, I think the sort of the gap between them and, and 18th now is at this time of year with the quality of those sides, a bit of a chasm. I expect Bournemouth to beat Spurs tonight and that should hopefully provide them with a little bit of momentum. But I still think that the, the Chelsea win changed the tone of this. And I think it's, um yeah, four points is not a... Uh, I can hear Adrian laughing in the background. I'm just, I'm just thinking that's, a, that's a, is that a jinx quote? You know, but, you know, if I say, if I say Bournemouth are going to beat Spurs, no, like, mate, it's, it's, it's a, it's, it's Doctor Tottenham. So I have, um, I have a friend who, um, who uh, decided a long time ago he was going to get married when uh, Tottenham were playing Watford away from home. I remember saying to him at the time that guarantees defeat. Because that's just one of the things that Tottenham do. It doesn't matter who manages the team. It doesn't matter who's who's playing in it. That's just something that Spurs do. And so you can see this a mile away. Come on, like you just um, you you'd put your absolute house on Spurs getting rolled over because it's 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 the team that have uh, the team that look most hopeless in the league at the moment. They can't defend. They can't attack. They can't score goals. They can't create chances. But you know what's coming. <laughs> right. Well, you know now what's coming because you've just given me an idea of how to end this show. <laughs> Right, thought for the day. Uh, your allegiances are fairly obvious. It's the North London Derby on Sunday. Aid mm. and Seb, I'd like you to give me your assessment of how your team will play on Sunday. <laughs> Arsenal are playing with much more confidence than Spurs. I've got, yeah, I, I feel this is a this is a golden opportunity. For Arsenal to win away away at Tottenham, they've had, they've got an awful record there of late. Wherever Spurs have played, whether at White Hart Lane or elsewhere, haven't won since 2014 away to Spurs in the league. Before that, the previous win was in 2007. So it's a long time actually since Arsenal were convincing in this fixture. I think there is an opportunity, given the confidence of the players, the way they're responding to the to the coach, to to turn Tottenham over. I'm not saying it will happen. But but this is their best chance for a while. Zeb? Yeah, I don't disagree with any of that. I, I mean, the one thing is, is, I think Arsenal go there with a bit of pressure. If they can't beat this Tottenham team, then that's really damaging because they are they're there to be they're there to be beaten. Huge problems in midfield. Can't defend. Eric Dyer now banned for four games. Big 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 problems at fullback. Where Arsenal all of a sudden look very very strong in those wide attacking positions. Spurs will, will sit deep with all 11 players and all five substitutes dropping into their own half and then um, try and do something on the break. That's, uh can see that in uh, happening on, on Sunday. Well, I'll end it on a, a Spurs theme, if you like. Now, whether they realise it or not, the FA came up with a coward's charter this week. By banning Eric Dyer for four matches, they issued an implicit invitation for abusers to do their worst, knowing they'll escape the blame. Now, I'll be honest. I would have reacted absolutely identically to Dyer if my brother was being abused. Spare me the sermons about not crossing the line between the pitch and the stands. Players are human beings with understandable instincts. The FA should have administered a light tap on the wrist and reminded him of responsibilities. A full game ban and a £40,000 fine? That's just ridiculous. Do you agree? I'd love to hear from you, and thanks once again for listening to the Football Writers Podcast. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.